0: Hello, salam. Welcome and to the New welcome Books to the Network, podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel with the New Books Network. I'm your co-host, Shahana Aqani. Today, I speak with Dr. Amina Wadud about her latest book, Once in a Lifetime, published in 2022 with Kantara Press. A book that started out as a blog for her HUD journey back in 2012. Dr. Amina Wadud is professor emeritus of Islamic Studies at Virginia Commonwealth University. She earned her PhD in Arabic and Islamic Studies from the University of Michigan in 1988. Her other books are Quran and Woman, Rereading the sacred text from a woman's perspective, published in 1992 with Oxford, and Inside the Gender Jihad, Women's Reform in Islam, published with One World in 2006. The book is rooted in her experience of the famous five pillars of Islam through a feminist, inclusive, and faith-centered lens. Each chapter includes relevant experiences related to the theme of the chapter, such as her specific experiences at Hajj, or the, or the gendered nature of certain Islamic rituals and the ways that common understandings of these rituals might affect women. In our conversation, we talk about the theme of the masculine and the feminine that figures throughout the book, the gender of God, the Islamic concept of Tawheed, monotheism, or unity of God, and its relation to fractals and nature and the cosmos, and her experiences at Hajj, which serve as the basis of the book. But mostly, I attempt to utilize my time with her to hear her speak about her journey through the last several decades as a Muslim academic committed to social justice and faith. The book's accessible and approachable style makes it especially useful for undergraduate religion courses, including certainly Islam and um, Islam and gender-specific courses, but any religion course. Anyone interested in personal journeys in religion, Islam and gender, Islam and religion would also benefit from this book. This here is my interview with Amina Wadud. Assalamu alaykum. Hi. Thank you so much for joining me to talk about your wonderful book that I was just telling you I read near nearly in its entirety uh, in one sitting once in a lifetime. Um so I'm so glad to have you and I am I will say I'm a bit intimidated. I'm a bit <laughs> I don't know how this is going to go. I was thinking about <laughs> This is like a once in a lifetime opportunity to get a chance to talk to Dr. Wadud, the giant of Islamic studies that everyone knows and respects and loves. And you know, it's a huge responsibility for doing this. So I'm nervous.
1: <laughs> well, the inside scoop is um, you were one of the first people in, like, you know, the next generation, you know, from me, maybe even two generations, who made expressions about my work that I really felt she really gets it. And I had felt so misunderstood. So I trust that this is just gonna be fine. It's my honor and my pleasure to be here. And um, you know, I, this is gonna be a nice opportunity to just talk about this book and this process.
0: Oh, good, I'm so glad to hear that. No, I have assigned your book, Quran and a Woman, which was for me personally life-changing and professionally life-changing. I, I cannot think in any other way now. Um, and I've assigned it in my classes, and sometimes I assign it at a at a point after the students have had to read more difficult, more very challenging, less um, easy to understand texts. And so, they are grateful for your book, your your arguments, there, your your um, interpretations, and the theories that you use and your methods. I I simply cannot imagine any other way of doing research now and approaching the Quran. So, uh, thank you for all of your scholarship and for um, for existing. And for blessing you with your presence. So the way that so this is the way that this works is that we typically ask our um, guests to talk about themselves, introduce themselves to us, and um, talk about their intellectual journey, intellectual background. I imagine everyone knows you already, um, but if there's anything that you want for those readers who might not be familiar with you and your work.
1: So I um, had my 70th birthday this year, and it is also uh, this month, in fact, on Thanksgiving Day, the 50th year since I uh, accepted to uh, become a Muslim, and the 30th year since the publication of Quran and Woman. So I've been thinking about who I am for quite some time this year, and I feel like i um, the blessings of my life are so intense that I, I, you know, I just like have just so much gratitude for one thing, choosing as an adult, i was already 20, like not legally able to drink, but, you know, close enough, um, choosing something at that age that actually inspired the rest of my life and inspired it with love I just feel so fortunate, and of course, the, the 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 sort of main ingredient of the love for me at that time was reading the Quran, to which I dedicated the rest of my life, and I'm still in love with the Quran. So my last name Wadud means loving, and uh, you know half the planets in my astrological chart are ruled by Venus, so I feel like I'm just like the love bug. Um, However, my ascendant is in Scorpio, which is ruled by Mars, and that's what people get. I'm very tough on the issues that I think are important, and those issues to me are removing the barriers from having a direct relationship with our creator, who chose us to be born on this beleaguered planet Earth for a purpose. And unfolding that purpose, to me, is also part of how we relate to the divine, how we conceive of the divine, what we do with the gifts of our life, how we face the challenges. So I have retired from U.S. academia 16 years now. I uh, had moments where I was quite poor, but I am so rich in the experiences of not being beholden to, you know, any kind of um institutional framework that sought to limit my potential obviously sometimes i feel that in the context of um you know mainstream muslim communities but uh with the, what is it one and a half billion of us there's so many with whom i do resonate that i spend my time traveling the earth uh, affirming this sense of gratitude towards the gifts that i've been giving and also um Just, you know, being amazed by the amazing people that I have met and been able to work with, like yourself, uh, over all these years. I mean, meeting you at that AAR, uh, you know, that many years ago, I have followed, you know, everything that you do. I just have so much respect for the way that you think, for the sincerity with which you challenge yourself to keep growing within your field. So, yeah, I'm just like, uh, maybe I need a new last name, Gratitude. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Thank you for that. And yeah, so we met in 2014. And then I think it was in 2015, um, Amanda Koreshi invited you to uh, a, you were in Austin, Texas for something. And I lived there for my PhD. And so there was, uh, we had a gathering at our house. It was one of the most spiritually fulfilling experiences of my life and then so this book of course very different from your other books it's very familiar language so it was it's beautiful it's just so needed i i sometimes i was laughing because uh and there were some references being made that I thought I got. Um, So it's really, really uh, very, very accessible, very easy to read book. What got you to write this book now? What do you hope we will take, that readers will take away from this? Who do you hope will read it?
1: Okay, so um, this book was uh, longer in uh, the making than it might seem, because um, I actually made the Hajj in 2012, uh, that being officially 10 years, while we're rounding off the years. Um, And um, I had an interesting uh, conversation with another, you know, senior Muslim woman um, uh, where I um, I thought, how am I going to manage, you know, what I expect to be the gender apartheid while, you know, focusing on the, 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 the ritual requirements and also, you know, trying to, you know, reach my heart through each of these steps um and uh, so I said you know I think I'll just like take some time to think about it and I'll just write I'll just you know sort of like journaling kind of thing about you know what the experiences were like and um my friend was like oh no you don't want to do that you want to just pretend like you're in the ninth century and you just kind of like want to go off and do this and I thought oh no that's the opposite of what I wanted to do So I proposed that I was going to write these blogs from Ramadan of the year that I made Hajj to the Hajj, which is roughly 100 days, and Religion Dispatches um, offered to give me a site online to do that, and it wasn't my first first experience of blogging, but it was the first one where I had a daily requirement to write, to be accessible. And in the middle of it, some publisher in California asked me about developing it to a book. And I said, I can't think about that now. I still have to make it to the Hodge and through the Hodge. And, um, you know, thinking about a book is kind of another project. But when I came back, I thought, wow, I have all this material. What would be the central theme what would make it into a book instead of sort of a hodgepodge of writing. And I thought, oh, just focus on the five pillars, like reorganize the material so that it fits in terms of those and uh, add material, you know, if it might be needed. So I wrote a book proposal and um, I dropped the ball. I wasn't able to to keep going with it. Um, But uh, when... um, uh, Concotta Press and Beacon Press, uh, uh, small Beacon Press in the UK got back to me about the same project. Um, they helped me, they accepted the proposal that I had written, but they also helped me to organize, you know, the mass amounts of material. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't quite drop the ball, but I didn't keep carrying it, however. To be honest, with the pandemic and, you know, the lockdown and everything, um, they and I began communication that actually led to the technical steps of pulling it together, you know, having them edit it, make recommendations, having me then go back and go through all of the uh, writings, which, fun enough, getting to read them again, separated from the event, was also very heartfelt for me. Um, But I really think my main motivation is because I am known for the kinds of cutting edge work that I have been blessed to do with regard to thinking critically about social justice and identity in Islam. Um, I think people miss the fact that um, I have been a sort of spiritually devout person uh, from being raised by, you know, a Methodist minister. I've always been interested in the sacred. And I have always engaged in the awareness that to have that kind of relationship, we must also work on ourselves. And in Islam, that work on yourself is encoded in our spiritual practices. So in a way, this was my opportunity to write about something that people don't usually ask me about when they call me, you know, to speak to their class, to present lectures, to teach courses and that kind of thing. And that was the fact that I see the spiritual part of my development on par with the, you know, gender jihad. So um, that's the kind of the story about how it all came together. Oh, who will read it? I'm sorry, you wanted to know who would read it. Okay. So as with the blogs, because it wasn't, you know, a Muslim specific thing, I'm, I'm sort of inspired by Tony Morrison, you know, write the book that you want to read. So my main audience is always marginalized persons um, in the context of Islam. Uh, but the context of Islam is not just Muslims so some of my writing has been beneficial to people who are not muslims but that's always been my main target audience but in this case actually my audience is anyone who seeks to understand this gift of life in relationship to the creator of life in a way that is not locked into certain grids of sort of patriarchy repetition or redundancy um, and um, it is still myself. I'm still writing for myself, but I'm writing for myself not just as a Muslim, you know, not just as a cisgendered woman, uh, not just as a black person, not just as a Muslim. I'm writing to myself as a human being in a, in, a, in another level.
0: I was just telling you, it has a the book has a very calming aura about it. Um, as as I've always believed that you do too um so that each chapter makes makes me um like it made me better understand things like you know prayer the, the importance of prayer for for in islam or the, uh, the the relevance of something like fasting you know it's very easy to say what is up with this discipline stuff i can just discipline myself in other ways it's very easy to say um, you know, why does it have to, why do, why do things have to get this technical? Um, and it's really beautiful to see you, your interpretations of some of these technicalities. You know, that brings me to ask, my partner is a physicist and he wanted to know when, when he first, when he first saw the book, um, and I hadn't read it yet. Uh, so I hadn't talked, I hadn't gotten to the point where you talk about fractals. Um, but he got really, really excited about it. And he found that, you know, the, as, as you mentioned in the book, also the cover uh, or that the there's a famous fractal called the Mandelbrot set. Um, and he wanted to know if that was a coincidence or if there was some reason behind it. So we can begin here with the first chapter and your idea your understanding of Tawheed and the tawhidic paradigm, because you're making a really important contribution here to our understanding of of Islam and the oneness of God. Would you tell our readers what your what, what this idea of Tawheed is and in what in what ways it is connecting us to everything in the universe, everything in the cosmos. Yes,
1: yeah, so um, the coincidence, again, was that um, my daughter, who actually studied uh, physics, uh, but found that the, the teaching wasn't spiritual enough, so she ended up getting two masters from from a, a seminary instead. Um, she introduced me to the Mandelbrot set through a series of uh, videos that were out there on it at just the same time that I started making the visuals for the Tauniti paradigm and it's just such an amazing synchronicity for me Um, because um, uh, being raised Christian I found that one of the challenges for me intellectually was to understand the trinity Um, and um, uh, lacking the understanding meant that Um, I didn't sort of throw everything out the baby with the bath, as they say, but instead I started looking for other expressions, you know, with regard to it, as I said, my sort of multi-faith version, Um, and then um, I actually became a practicing Buddhist, which is a non-theist tradition. And with a non theist tradition, and especially, you know, the practice of meditation, um, it gave me a chance to let go of a fixation on the male god. So when I let go of that male god and then became Muslim, the first thing that resonated with me was tawheed. It resolved the issues that I had had in terms of the Trinity, um, but it also, uh, over time, developed, you know, as I will tell you in a minute. Um, But... Often, when we relate Tawhid only to the term monotheism, the focus on, you know, the God is one part, which is only one part of that understanding Um is enough of a challenge for people who come from say Trinitarian or polytheistic you know, kinds of um, backgrounds. So that's enough of a challenge. I mean, just one, you know, I mean, I really dig Callie. How come we can't have her, you know? So it's like, you know, you have to negotiate sometimes about how you're going to deal with just the one and how not to make it seem hegemonic. And that's when I learned to distinguish between hegemony and hierarchy. Um, but um, when I came further and further into Islam, specifically through the struggles of social justice, I did begin to think about Tawheed beyond just the God is one. And that's when I got into, you know, that God is also united. There are 99 names, masculine and feminine names. They're all Allah and yet they are all coherent into one. So that brought another dimension, and that dimension is spiritual, and I'm still you know, pursuing that. But the other thing was uh, encapsulating this relationship between the laws creation on the earth, that is, you know, us and, you know, the planet and all that, encapsulating that uh, underneath the umbrella of tauheed as a term for social justice. So that means that law. Um, Uh, unites what might seem to be disparate or oppositional um, relationships. And encapsulating that to this day is the thing that keeps me grounded in terms of Islam. Because, you know, and with the Mandelbrot set giving me all these other visual depictions and understandings of how it works through math alone, um, I came to understand that we are always working to harmonize what might even be disparate parts of ourselves uh, or disparate experiences that we have or encounters in the universe, you know, with others in community and, you know, families and all that kind of stuff. We're always struggling to, you know, make these kinds of balances. And the thing that actually creates that balance is tauheed. It is the nature of an organizing principle that has both the power and spirit of creation, but at the same time has the continual presence uh, that uh, allows for us to engage in whatever kind of struggle to enjoy whatever kind of joy there is, but at the same time still be organizing principle. You know, the breath of life and You know, in in um, in our struggles. So I am Muslim because of Tawhid. and I have learned that people see and understand sometimes visually more than abstractly. Um, and so for me, the coming across the manly set at just the time when I was moving beyond the theological understandings of Tawhid into the social justice aspects of Tawheed. As I said, it was the, you know, the beautiful synchronicity of the universe. So it just seemed like I needed to capture that uh, for this book, which is one of the few places where I have been allowed to align my scholarship, my spirituality, and my social justice in one volume. Sometimes I have to do, you know, sort of like divorce from my spirituality, or sometimes the spirituality is divorced from my activism, or you know, sort of academic uh, pursuits. And I've always been seeking the tawheed of my own life experiences. So that's yeah, that's kind of how it all came together. No,
0: that makes that makes perfect sense. Um, and and it's on page twenty. 20- I believe that according to my notes anyway, Um, have you ever seen? So at page 22 at the at the last uh, paragraph, you say, have you ever seen computer generated images of a fractal? A fractal is a pattern based on a repetitive mathematical formula that adheres to its unity and form at the most minute levels. And when projected to its largest manifest levels, one such fractal, the Mandelbrot set has been called the thumbprint of God. I teach religion. And very introductory uh, courses in religion. And we talk a lot about Confucianism, Buddhism, Taoism, and indigenous religions. And this explanation of yours, this understanding of yours on Tawheed, it connects Islam to these other religions in very powerful ways. And so, indigenous religions, with, you know, indigenous religions and Confucianism, Taoism, with their idea that. Everything in the universe is connected, that we're not separated from, we're a part of the cosmos and it's a part of how we know what the impact of our the consequences of our karma, the the karma that we collect is going to be. It's an explanation of Islam that I've never heard before, but it just makes so much sense now. So thank you for that. I. I, I have to ask, um, and because I, I feel like it would be a missed opportunity if I if I didn't. But the theme of the masculine and the feminine keeps coming up throughout the the book. And in fact, you um, ascribe gender to in 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 a very powerful and radical way to Ramadan and Hajj. You know, the uh, Ramadan is is a queen, and Hajj is the king. And and you you affirm and you recognize that God has feminine and masculine qualities and 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 attributes. And sometimes you use masculine um, pronouns for God or feminine pronouns for God. God. And then also, I believe I saw the the pronoun it a couple of times. Um, all of which I, you know, I, I cherish that. So I, I'm just, I'm fascinated by this way of thinking about God, and I'd love to hear some more about, especially this masculine, feminine, uh, these cho- the choices that you're making here to sort of uh, gender these important concepts and practices and, and and things.
1: Yeah, I've been trying to get people, um, you know, for example, students from my class to think beyond masculine and feminine as just um, the gendered embodiment of male and female persons, um, but to take it into its more archetypal uh, kind of expressions. And therefore I do, I embody gender and all kinds of things. I, I keep an altar and on my altar, I have things that are noticeably within the feminine archetype and noticeably within the masculine archetype. And each month at the new moon, I kind of allow, you know, whatever intuitive location of these things and what relationship they have with each other to sort of unfold, you know, on this table. And um, when I uh, sort of began to internalize the Tauhidic paradigm beyond just the theological into the, you know, political um, and spiritual, um, I kind of jumped from the masculine God, the Jalal God to the Tauhidic with the intention, obviously, of, you know, sort of like the Taoist. In fact, it was um, Sachiko Maraja's book, The Tao of Islam, which actually was a, a kind of like um, a, an, an immediate uh, inspiration for thinking beyond the hegemonic binaries. Um, and um, I realized more recently that having jumped straight into the Talheedic, I had not given enough attention to the divine feminine, to the Jemaah. And I decided the last couple of years that I was going to go back and I was going to give more attention to that, because the way to best understand the harmony, uh, sort of the Tawhidic unity, is to make sure that the parts are, uh, you know, uh, fully identified and therefore capable of being fully integrated without any hijabni. And I'm still working on that. Um, the reason being that um, people still struggle with things like you no know, referring to Allah um, as she uh, because they think that the um, Arabic language is somehow some ex- uh, exceptional language and that the rules of the Arabic language are the only rules that apply to the universe. And so uh, in Arabic, everything has to be divided into a masculine or a feminine with the exception of three words. Um, and so it does bifurcate the thinking. And so when you start talking about Tawheed, they're still Taqi a male god, um, and they justify that because the generic form in Arabic is masculine. When I tell my students, the masculine form of the word for being pregnant uh, is the master is the master form. But males, you know, they than trans, they don't get pregnant. Few animal species, but uh, so like don't think about it literally. And it's very hard for people to break that gridlock. Um, so i i have to um, i have to accept that unless you face certain challenges, there is a possibility that you will not transform. And um, so, for me, when I watch the evolution of certain things, um, I find it—I um, find it instrumental. Uh, so, coming to 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 work at how we conceive of Allah's feminine um, aspects uh, as essential to the nature of God. I mean, uh, Rahim or the womb is feminine. It's always conceived of as you know, sort of being circular, which is another archetype for uh, you know the feminine. Um, from which comes Ar-Rahim, the most oft repeated attributes of Allah that's out there. Uh, the Prophet was sent, you know, um, except as a mercy. So, this theme of the feminine um, is so central and yet historically so under uh, promoted in the context of Islam. So, uh, sometimes tongue in cheek. Um, I like to give people a difficult time by when I throw in uh, the use of she. Um, it's just, you know, it, it, because I was in that box, you know, and I always, you know, as I said, I went from the masculine to the Tawhidic. So in my head, I can analogously understand the masculine as a representative, not of a male reality or person, but, or being, but rather as, you know, part of the transcendent being, it is neither masculine nor feminine, or it is both masculine and feminine. And you know, there's some people who crave that in their heart, but there's some people who are very fixated on the literal reading of the Arabic language. So they can't figure out how to get there. And I I do I do remember that it was a journey for me. And at this point now, it's just no way that I can ever conceive of God as male. Um but I do remember when I did. So it's nice to grow.
0: Well, in my objective opinion, I think we should just all use the word she for God because it includes H E in there. <laughs> right? you no, know, I, like I that. every every time I use she, I, I I also um I just I can't bring myself to use he for God. I just I feel that I'm so fed up of the masculine idea of God, of God as a man. Um, but every time I've used the word uh she for God, I've had people say to me, how dare you, God has, uh, he has no, you, you need to stop gendering God. He has no gender. And I'm like, you literally yes. just used. Exactly,
1: exactly, how exactly. Do you know they don't consider the he to be a gendered pronoun. And that's where it becomes a problem. I also like uh, capital uh, S, sometimes in parentheses, capital H-E to try to embody, you know, that notion that she includes everything. But I will tell you this, just, you know, um, uh, there's also a part of uh, having the healing of our relationship to the male or the masculine aspects, you know, of a law that is part of the journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some ways, the experiences of rampant patriarchy for you know, I think they say six thousand years or something like that. Um, for those of us who have a certain consciousness, a certain awareness, realize, well, wow, that's been problematic for so many way- reasons um when we are limited to the he literal male god uh and we start to transform there is a a sense of challenge you've to face but there is also another tauhidic place of arrival where you actually are no longer bothered by it um but you're not unconscious of the controversy and the conflict and the you know sort of uh, oppositional you know uh, aspects of it but rather because It's just like i said i i I mean i was raised christian and i had so much trouble with the notion of the trinity now i have like a better understanding of the trinity than i did when i was you know um it's like entering my teen years and i first started thinking is that all there is is that the only way to think about you know this you know transcendent reality um so eventually there's a healing of that as well it's interesting
0: That's, well I, and, and that's one of the thing one of the things that I loved that I've loved um, about your work is this this journey this, uh, this acknowledgement of journey. I've I'm finally at a point in my life and this is also an inspiration from you uh, where if somebody doesn't like my work, I'm okay with that. If somebody doesn't like my YouTube channel or the videos that I that I post or the arguments I make, I have finally,, um, you know, come to a point where I can just peacefully and calmly say, you know what? That's okay. This is not for you right now. Maybe it'll be for you in the future when it is. If it if it if it ever is, you're welcome back. But it's also okay that it's not and it may it may never be. And that is such a such a relief. I don't have to try to convince somebody about my way of life and why I am, you know, why I choose to believe the ways that I do. Um but there's but, but speaking of this journey stuff, then how have your ideas and uh, prayer fasting um evolved in your in your, in your journey to uh, or th- throughout Islam?
1: Yes, it's a, again, it, you know it's a mercy and a blessing to experience um different locations with regard to these. When I first became Muslim, I was so in love with Salat that you know I used to hurry off I was in the city of Philadelphia. you know I want to hurry off to the mosque so I can do two to Masjids. Uh, you know, greetings to the mosque, four sunnah, four nawah, four extra prayers, before the four obligatory, followed by the two after. It's like the more units that I could get in, I was just smitten by this performance. And then Allah took the love, the salat, away from me. And it was a struggle. And I had the same experience with the fasting. Oh, I was just so into the fasting. I mean, I once voluntarily fasted for two months. You know, I felt like I was expiating my sins. So I'm, it wasn't just voluntary. So the idea that there is like a romantic period with regard to some of these things, and then there might be a separation, even a divorce, is to me part of the journey. And um, accepting that, and at, at the moment, I, you know, tried to um, offer a consultation to people who are struggling, you know, sort of with the basic rituals and everything, um, to be patient. With the transformations that occur because even in those transformations as long as you know it's like when i had the sex talk with my boys it was different you know with my than with my girls um you know it's like i know you know what the rules are you know so let me just tell you what mine is never compromise the integrity of yourself and another person we know the rules we know the five times prayers We know the names i live here you know the adhan is called fortunately, beautifully from several mosques within here, we know this part, but that doesn't mean that we are synchronized to the depth of our being at every occasion. For a long time, after being just so smitten, so in love, so head over heels, when I entered into this other phase I couldn't reconcile it, you know. I mean, I was even kind of angry with God that, you know, the love didn't keep going at the same level. Um, so I think the the metaphor of the journey, first of all, sharia comes from sharia, street. It's a it's a pathway, pathway that leads to Allah. Um, or, or you know, classically path that leads to water or the source of all life, which for us the source is a love, right? But also tariqah for the Sufi tariqah, it's a path. Um, the way the Tao Taoism means way Um, and so I do see life as a journey uh, and the purpose of the journey the 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 goal of the journey is for us to fulfill our purpose and that purpose is as individual as the cells in our body and yet when we find it when we, we resonate with it there is a moment of the shining brilliant light of top that we experience in ourselves and those are the, the milestones the markers you know for you know increments in your life and sometimes those increments are ones you have to come back to because you're like a little higher up on the mountain or you've been through the river or you know whatever the other metaphors of journey you know that are out there um but in my estimation at the ripe old age of 70 i feel like um i try to I wait to see how long it takes my mind to think I'm awake now and it's a new day, and then to express gratitude. Thank you, Allah, for giving me another day, so I can try towards you know the completion of my journey. You know of this of the purpose of my life. Um, I try to make that a conscious affirmation as soon as the brain kind of remembers you know what's going on in wakefulness, because um, some people think that the objective is the goal towards which you are journeying and I used to have that per- perspective but actually it's the journey itself it's the it's the movement towards the end of that life the purpose being fulfilled the meeting with the Allah etc cetera, etc cetera. and in this using these terms about motion it allows me to accept that sometimes the road is rocky uh, sometimes the pathway is blocked. Uh, sometimes you have to scale up very high. The air gets thin. You can't breathe very well. It allowed me to then take all the moments, you know, you get to the top. I just came from Mount Bromo for sunrise. And the I mean, the pictures that I took there, they look like paintings. The sky is just so amazing. And the view is just so awesome, you know? So sometimes you do experience those wow moments but you can't linger in those wild wow moments, to be honest. You have to come back down the hill and you know, pay your bills and read your students' papers and blah, blah, blah. You know? So I think the journey metaphor is helpful because I don't see it, you know, we think about the Sarat Rusakim as being just like literally straight. Um uh, but also actually if you're moving towards what is your purpose. The purpose for which Allah created you and which allows you to return to Allah, you know, with the confidence and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, your journey is going to take all the twists and turns, but it will be straight towards where it is you're supposed to go. And as you make those turns, even when you come to, you know, a cul-de-sac or dead end you will simply say, oh, okay, well, this is not the way to go through. I'm gonna have to find another way and you just keep on going. And I like that because, you know, with every breath that you take, you're breathing for Allah. You know, Allah is breathing through you and to keep that sense of vitality in life. The other thing that helps me are metaphors about movement. So the journey metaphor, it may not work for everybody It's so well that it works for me, but it works really well for me. <laughs>
0: Oh, no, the journey metaphor is so powerful. And it is, it's also, um, and again, because of uh, some conversations that you and I have had, and especially the interview we had, um, I think that you did with Fitna a couple of years ago when the pandemic first hit, uh, when um, your discussion of journey made me realize that the, that's islam's focus Rick, as you've pointed out is is this journey too so uh islam is less you know god is less interested in um in the destination in the conclusions that we'll make and this is a, a huge part of why all of these scholars opinions are quote unquote correct they're all valid and the expectation is that they're doing struggle they're they're, they're they're doing a struggle right it is supposed to be a struggle to figure out the best possible way to be a Muslim, the best possible meanings, um, to extract the best possible meanings from the Quran. That is why the ideally the conclusions are great and ideally they're correct and ideally they're, you know, compassionate and good and inclusive. But Sometimes they won't be, and the idea was that the journey was supposed to be um, the, the the more important focus. And so, I think it's a, such an applicable uh, metaphor. And you know, I I kept as I was reading this, um, especially and uh, well, the idea of the five the five pillar approach to this uh, to this book um, or or method of this book of organizing this book. Um, I kept wondering how Shia Muslims might read this book. Right. So there's this idea that I, you know, um, that, I, that, I'm, that I've that that I'm, i become that I've started to think um, more critically about, uh, you know, framing Islam or teaching Islam as a as a five from, from a five pillar approach. And uh, whereas for Shia'is, for example, the prayers would be three to five times or uh, the Hajj becomes complicated because of, you know, Iran and Saudi Arabia or because pilgrimage is not just to Mecca. It might also be to these important sacred sites and so on. And. Um, and of course, the you know the fasting times will will be different. The breaking of the fast because of uh, interpretations of what is sunset and what does the Quran mean when it says the thread of something about the light and the darkness and so on. I would love to hear your, your thinking on this. How might a shia, what should a shia person um, you know look for in here, or how might they still feel represented and included in this in this study?
1: Yeah, I'm happy to, um, you know, re-identify with more details, uh, and then sort of say a Sunni Sufi journey, um, because, um, while I, uh, am aware of some differences, I'm not familiar to the level of, you know, sort of, um, spontaneous comfort, uh, with all of the differences, and as such, I tend to, um, uh, identify this book as more about my personal journey um and therefore as I said you know sort of uh, hyphenating the name I think is appropriate I don't feel like I was sufficiently inclusive and um that the opportunity to experience and again this is uh, I, I probably haven't said this yet but this is about the experience of faith for me um about the opportunity to experience you know, certain aspects of uh, Shia worship um, is, is has been very limited for me. I've never gone on one of the ziyaras for example. You know, to uh, Sufi shrines. It's you know still something that I can hope for. Um, I do pray with the um, uh, begins with a K. You know, the stone. Yeah.
0: I I use the word turba for it, but for the for the turba, turba uh, Yes.
1: Anyway, I do pray with that because I um, I don't have a lot of um, earth in my birth uh, astrological chart, and I feel like I need that grounding. I feel like I need to like touch the actual material of the earth, even though I pray inside and on a rug and all that, so I, I put my forehead on that, and that allows me to uh, ground myself, to realign myself with the planet that you know, Allah chose to you know, give human life uh, from. Um, and um, I love the idea of the uh not five times prayer because i do advise people and i'm taking this advice myself in terms of how to uh, resume or to pick up a regular practice and um sometimes you know the best that people can do so for me like i just say you know just like take a moment you know a couple times a day and just think about a lot just say a lot and you know that's it so it's like one word uh, and then I go into like maybe you just want to say the Fatiha five times a day, you know, or maybe you just want to, you know. So it's like the evolution of a return to the five time daily ritual of the Sunni practice um, benefits from. The three times a day Shia practice because if you can establish, you know, morning, midday, and sometime at night, if you can establish that, you've really covered a, a great deal of your day. If you have been struggling with the five, if you haven't been struggling with the five, this all this conversation is moot. I know a lot more people, I myself included, who struggle with the five. And so I can see the benefit of that. But to be honest, I neglected to be um, inclusive um, along those lines. And I think it's probably better to just be honest about that and say, you know, this is a from the perspective of a Sunni Sufi Muslim woman. <laughs>
0: Or, or to claim, well, I don't, I don't identify with either, and so this is just the Islamic, because uh, you know that, that that privilege to be able to say oh, this is just the Islamic view. Um, no, that's <laughs> unfair. No, we will we'll get that a lot, right? Like, oh, I'm just telling you what the Islamic <laughs> view is, it's not Sunni. No, uh, like, wait, let's be realistic here. We're let's going
1: be to... realistic. Yes, everything and, and, is either Sunni or To be honest,
0: right? I appreciate that. I think it, it makes perfect sense. This is, you know, this is a journey. This is a personal journey. This is a, these are personal experiences. And especially if you've been in the context of primarily Sunni communities, then, of course, these experiences would be very, very Sunni and major- uh, shared by by Sunni Muslims as well. So one of the things that I found so um, beautiful about this book and that I loved and and it was I, I couldn't afford to skip a page because I was like, wait, what, what if there's a really fun anecdote there <laughs> or, or I <laughs> So I, I couldn't even afford to skip the lines or, or or pages because it was just such a fun read that was done in a way where you've got this method, you've got this method of how you're gonna organize the book. So you kind of, I know what it's, I know, I know what's coming, and I know what the the larger theme is. And then as you describe each of these themes and, and explain explain your uh, your practice of Islam through these themes, you will mention these very powerful um moments right of experiences anecdotes and so on people that 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 you meet that you meet um, and of course the significance of gender that comes up and and patriarchy is just relevant everywhere and I I wasn't angry which is which is unusual for me (laughs) (laughs) because there's patriarchy in here right because your experiences are going to be you're going to have to deal with patriarchy so much and you, you write this in such a way that I'm not full of rage. And I don't Aww. know if that's just because I'm finally growing up, but I wasn't even sad because sometimes more recently, my response has been when I see such disturbing levels of patriarchy, misogyny, I get really sad instead of angry. Mm-hmm. And but I wasn't even sad, but throughout your Hajj experiences, throughout your, you know, the, when you talk about, um, the prayer experiences and the, the very important way in the fasting, and the very important ways in which these are gendered, um, practices and women get excluded and how the scholars decided that women's, you know, when women miss prayers, uh, or fast, uh, fast for menstruation, they have to make it up and so on. And you're like, how do they keep up with the math, but how would anyone keep up with the math? But all of that to say, um, I think that would take a special skill to to be able to write this in, in this book in in a way that wouldn't anger me, and that's not to say that you know when I do get angry, it's, the, the scholar hasn't done a good job writing the book. It's to say that
1: <laughs> it's it, just that patriarchy is something that makes us angry, <laughs>
0: right? <laughs> no, but but it's it's that it has I, I keep I keep saying this, but it has a very calming tone to it, and it has that it has that. Uh, like your spiritual maturity shows in it. And it like, it has this, this, this I, I read it as how can I, what can I learn from this about my own practice? And what can I take from this that might be helpful to me personally to, you know, as an academic and so on. And so to have, you know, to have an academic, a brilliant academic like yourself, write this book and 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 make this, as you said, this is a very personal, very spiritual experience journey it is so refreshing i appreciate it because mm-hmm. i mean honestly uh, non, non-muslims non get get to get away with stuff like this all the time it's when muslims do it that it's like oh we can't take this seriously because this is not academic and so on and so the academic and you definitely still showed up right as i think you point out in the beginning that you're trained to to to, to be critical and so on but um, uh, it, that still showed up and obviously in the way that you're going to write this shows up but um, so all of that to say I'd love to hear um, just to make sure that we get at least one question in for gender I think with the Hajj is probably where it's most your identity as a convert as a black as an African-American as an American as a woman um, all kind of culminate in this one experience what would what would be some of the main takeaways that you want us to get from the chapter from the discussion on Hajj and your experience in Makkah
1: yeah remember that the um the the journey of the you know the completion of the book started with doing these blogs specifically because i did not want to be waylaid with the anger or the sadness um that i also normally encounter when i um you know have to come up against these against these things especially like for example when you point out the sunni centrism um of it it's like oh that's actually true. I, I you know, I, I wasn't as inclusive. Um, and so, you know, sometimes unaware, you know, sometimes you're unaware of the impact that some of these things will have on you. They just sort of like fly in your face. And I expected that I was going to have more than one of those for the Hajj. And I was warned by, you know, women friend who had gone before. And one of the ways in which I thought I would try to come to my own piece was to just like journal um, and the journal, you know, actually, you know, was turned into a blog, you know, which was in fact published. Um, so that meant, that meant that it wasn't just personal. I was also thinking about how do I um, how do I talk back to these things? Um, so, you know, that was an intentional part of it, um, but also because to make the Hajj, one goes through all those, you know, those short books that they have to introduce you to all of the rites and rituals you know, across several locations in several days, et cetera. Um, And they were all so patriarchal and so ignorant of the replication of their patriarchy. I just thought, we need an introductory book that does not address these pillars um, uh, with a presumption of patriarchal privilege. Uh, So there were, you know, both of those were intentional on my part. Um, I do think that um i don't know if i remember to say it in here but when you decide to make this you know once a lifetime journey even if you make it 10 times like some people actually do um you want to be more conscious to choose uh, a group uh that will move forward in this journey with you without it in and of itself creating certain blocks Um, And I didn't have that, Um, but I did come to the understanding at a certain point, especially in the dance at Mina, this is the Hajj that Allah has given to you, this is where you are right now. So if you want to make the best of Hajj, you must make it through this one. You can't make the best of Hajj for the future. In the future, you can try to make a better one, but I mean, you know, so I decided I was going to relinquish my preoccupation of anger or sadness with regard to certain patriarchal restrictions, so I could step back and look at them tongue-in-cheek when they happened, and they did happen, you know, Uh, like, for example, in the tents, um, the men uh, would come to the women's tent just like little orphans. It's like they couldn't function without the women making their lives okay. And I thought, I don't see the women hanging out at the men's. They're supposed to be so in charge and so privileged. Why is it that they're hanging around our tent? You know, I mean, I didn't have a man related to me. So this this was like an imposition, just to get in and out of my tent. Had to go to these men trying to get word to somebody who they knew knew their wife or their daughter or their mother or whoever it was. Uh, so, yeah, you know, it's it, there were certain biases, but um, so they're there. They're always going to be there. Um, I don't think in the throng of the participation of the rituals that I had a tremendous pushback on anything with regard to the performance, with the exception of the fact that they will physically remove you from the first floor of the Masjid al-Haram surrounding the courtyard with the Kaaba. Uh, these days, they'll actually also remove you from the courtyard, but when I was there, they would still let us pray on that courtyard. That The fact that you would physically be pushed in a basement or something uh, by the so-called uh, security, male and female, um, I think that that was the, the, the worst patriarchal affront that I had. Everything else, I was expecting, or I wasn't surprised by, or I wasn't personally bothered by, because I said, oh, I'm going to write about this when I get back in my room or something like that, you know? Um, and so whatever other things that I had, I was able to calculate to the extent that they were personal. Like, this is just me, I'm tired, and you know, the line is really long to get lunch or whatever, you know? So I was able to make assessments of things that I think the principal cause was patriarchy and um, even those things that the principal cause was just disorganization of my particular tour group. Um, So choose wisely who you would make this journey with. Um, Test out not only the company in terms of how they um, promote everything, but the Saudis have removed that. Now everybody has to go through them. So who knows what that's going to be like for actual, you know, making the journey. But um, I just felt like I didn't have the company, the company, the particular travel company that I was working with was not the one that really nurtured the Hodge experience, um, equally for the women and the men. Um, so yeah, you have to think about that because you will be, you know, week, two weeks, three weeks, you know, with this group of people at what might literally, you know, your only once in a lifetime experience or something. So yeah, you know, I mean, like as much attention as you pay to picking out socks, you know, pay attention to who you choose, you know? So I I think that that's probably, I think you can get around it. I think you can have a spiritual experience wherever you are, um, being alone and an elder, Um, Making this hajj, you know, I did witness other women that just sort of, like, they overdid it, so they had to, like, use a proxy for, say, Rami Jamarat throwing stones um, at the Satan, or, you know, it's like, really think about what could happen, because it is physically rigorous, um, and you really want to have the support that will allow you to participate as fully, you know, as you can in your own body.
0: Thank you for that. I I was gonna actually ask one of my next questions was gonna be you know advice, but <laughs> you, you just gave that for the hajj part. I've I've thought about um, going on a hajj, but I just I don't think I'm I'm ready emotionally for w- what I'm expecting to be a lot of patriarchy. And one of the uh, one of one of the things that I assign in in one of my classes actually when we talk about um, hajj is uh, your article on uh, that was on the feminism and religion blog, I think it is, and it's a very brief. Very powerful article where I think it was the first time that I realized and now I cannot teach the Hajj story or the, the Ibrahim and Hajj story without your um, under from the lens that you're talking about it. Where I think you say you say something like, um, she's the reason we do this, you know, the running back and forth and women are not allowed to run
1: back and forth. Like You <laughs> can't have a sign saying women
0: don't run. <laughs> It, it just, it. I mean, the patriarchy never makes sense. I've, I'm, so I've gotten tired of trying to rationalize any of it. But it's, it, it How, how is this? You know, how is this happening? But, um. So it's such, such a disconnect, such, a, huh? <laughs> it's, it's such a disconnect. <laughs> but again, not to be expected. I feel like if I were to go on a Hajj, I'd be like, yeah, I, I knew this was gonna happen, and I was, I was expecting this, and so, uh, you know, choosing your battles, I guess. So I'm, I'm finally mature enough to not to know oh, that I'm
1: not. I'm forearms you're like it's like okay i know this sign is going to be there but i'm going to pretend i don't read either english or arabic i'm just going to run
0: (laughs) (laughs) there you go that's one way (laughs) Um, i I know we didn't talk about zakat the zakat chapter um if there's anything you want to add there
1: um i feel like i didn't have a full chapter for zakat and a full chapter for the shahada so it's you know I, i i don't know whether or not it's obvious there's some things that i had to write As I was editing it, there's some things that were part of the original blogs that were also sort of edited and cleaned up. But then when I thought, oh, you're going to have these chapters with each one for one pillar. Obviously, I can talk about Tawheed when I talk about the Shahada. That works fine. That gives me more content. But when it came to the Zagat one, it was more difficult, except that I wanted to talk in general about charity um, but still it is pretty thin. Whereas Hodge is like really a loud
0: stuff. <laughs> yeah and that was yeah so some chapters were shorter than others and the Hajj one I but I think there's something about the way that the book is written and maybe in the title that that's kind of understood that hey I'm going to give a lot of attention to I think we get like at least two chapters on Hajj I forget
1: yeah the the editors decided that you know they would kind of break it up into two parts
0: yeah Yeah, and so it's a good
1: uh, good thing yeah
0: yeah oh I think so too so I think there's I think the reader knows to expect that and so I wasn't expecting a long detailed chapter on Zakat and I wasn't expecting a long detailed chapter on prayer or any, any other stuff but I did um i thought i I thought your discussion of monotheism was absolutely um brilliant and i think that was that makes a huge contribution i think to to islam and then it's understood i think for the reader that hey there's going to be a huge emphasis on this once in a lifetime journey um trip Mm -hmm. that i will be talking about and so that was that was the thing that i was most excited about and i couldn't wait to get to and i um, and I love very much. So that's, I, I don't think that's a flower or anything in the book. Uh, as we, as we, as we become, as we, oh my God, get to near a close or as we begin to close, I, we are asked to ask our guests about their, what works they're currently doing um, that we can look forward to the near, in, in the near future. And I, you were telling me earlier, and I'd love to, for our readers to hear about this or listeners to hear about this.
1: So, um, I've been trying to promote the uh, integration of serious studies of sexuality um, back into the fields of Islamic studies. Um, I worked on some things independently, so, I started Queer Islamic Studies and Theology, or KIST, as a dot com. Um, now, I'm collaborating with a couple of different institutions to actually um, formulate some courses for 2023. Um, And um, in terms of my own study in theology, uh, one of the biggest challenges for me when I was doing the research project on, um, you know, sort of uh, Islamic sources uh, in the classical period about sexual diversity um, was that I couldn't find definitive answers to certain things that I hoped. Just dedicating myself to the study of it would provide. So um, I need to write about how I came to accept that and what I learned about ambiguity as an aspect of guidance. I'm very excited about it, and I just keep, you know, scattering myself between teaching two courses after retirement, which is a lot for me, and and you know, servicing um, my communities, um, you know, across the world. So I just need to stop. Saying yes to everything for everybody and uh, start writing on this because it's very interesting how um, that sort of you know halal haram mentality you know black white top bottom kind of thinking causes us to defer to the places where you can find a specific Quranic word or a specific passage that says exactly what you want and, you know, blah, 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 or even, you know, a Hadith or even, you know, a Sunnah, some some aspect of, uh, you know, the law, Um, but actually there is a kind of, um, I think uh, Amir, the Ammanullah, said, you know, something like, you know, this glorious ambiguity. There is something that's happening there, and I want to talk about how it metaphorically actually enhances our capacity to embrace the unknown and as such becomes a rubric for our guidance so that's the thing as far as like you know sometimes i'm motivated by certain topics um and that's the topic that i'm most motivated but at the more practical level um you know working on things for queer Islamic studies and theology is is what i'm looking at
0: well thank you so much i'm i can't wait for that and the theme of ambiguity has been My theme this year, I feel like, you know, Leila's book is all about this idea of ambiguity and um, sort of uncertainties and so on. And so. Uh, I'm I that's something that I know I'd be very interested in mm-hmm. um, and then I so because you're here and because I've got your attention now I feel like it would be a missed opportunity if I didn't ask you something about what advice what, what advice would you like to give us uh, my generation of Muslim feminists who are working who are doing um, work uh, influenced by yours and things that, ideas that you started that are still incredibly um, significant and influential for us.
1: Uh, first of all, um, I remember um, <clears throat> another young uh, feminist who created a little gif with pictures of me and two for friends, and it says, we are the hero we've been waiting for. I am so inspired by your generation. It has allowed me to continue to do things which at my age I really should just quit doing um, because you have had to see at least the beginnings of some very critical considerations of the way patriarchy has operated uncriticized for so long, um, and, uh, you know, at the same time, you've had, to, you've had to also make your way so that you have, you know, a job or a salary or a position in, you know, in the community or whatever it is. So I just want you to know, first of all, how inspiring you are for me. So keep doing what you're doing. Um, the whole, you know, generation, the queer Muslim generation, you know, in your age frames, they've been such an inspiration for me. Um, but the other thing that I want to say, which is sort of like, you know, the real crux of the matter is I truly believe that we each have the capacity to have a one on one relationship with our creator. And when you know things get tough, the waters get rough, that is the rope that you want to hold on to. So I would urge your generation to come to peace. With whatever it is that is your rope in terms of the ongoing struggle. Um, and not to be shy that it may not be mainstream, you know, whatever way in which you find yourself connecting to the entire energies of the universe, you want to nurture that. You want to light a candle for it, burn an incense, sing a song. You really want to. Take care of the depth of your soul in the ways in which the mainstream is not doing it. Because really, when the going gets rough, you will be floating on that rash. So I think my one advice, you know, would be, you know, take care of your soul.
0: Thank you so much, Amina, for joining me to talk about your book, Once in a Lifetime. And I am, I feel so privileged to have done this interview with you. So thank you again.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Also, thank you for your patience with the scheduling mix-ups and everything. Enjoy the AAR. Please give my salams to everybody that you remotely think I might know. and Wish them all well and wish you well. Hope to hear from you soon. All right. well do. Salam. All
0: right. So that was my interview with Dr. Amina Wadud about her latest book, Once in a Lifetime, published in 2022 with Canterra Press. I hope you enjoyed the book as much as I did. Thanks for listening. Salam.